Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This is Reset. I'm Susie on in for Jen White. Yesterday afternoon, the Washington Post published an interesting op-ed on dysfunction in the Senate and the need for more bipartisan action. In a moment of deep political divisions, it's a topic that resonates with people. In fact, the op-ed is one of the most read stories on the Post site right now. But what's perhaps most interesting about the piece is the byline, 70 former U.S. senators. One of those senators is Illinois Democrat Carol Mosley Braun. She served in the U.S. Senate for one term from 1993 to 1999. If you're not familiar with Mosley Braun, know this. She was a trailblazer. She was the first African-American woman to serve in the Senate, the first African-American senator ever in the Democratic Party, one of only two African-Americans to serve in the Senate in the 20th century, and perhaps one of my favorite details, one of the first two women lawmakers to wear pants on the Senate floor. So what does someone who broke the mold in the Senate think today's Senate needs to do to break out of its mold? Carol Mosley Braun joins me now to discuss that and more. Welcome back to WBEZ and welcome to Reset. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. What made you and your fellow former U.S. senators want to team up to call for more bipartisanship in the upper chamber of the United States Congress? This was an effort organized by the former members of Congress, which is an organization in Washington that keeps us all in touch with one another. I mean, they do all kinds of things, including death notices and whatnot. But when they reached out to ask if I wanted to join in on the bipartisanship letter, uh, I readily agreed because obviously it's something that we sorely need in these times. It's not just about bipartisanship. It's about civility. Two parties is not in our Constitution. And George Washington, in fact, warned against factions developing. And so we, ha- we are now have gridlock and a lot of bullying going on, which I think is frankly a part of this conversation. And it's unfortunate because what it means is the people's business does not get taken care of like it should because you've got these stark antipathies between the parties and between individuals in the parties. People don't talk to each other. They don't go to, with each other. They don't go to dinner anymore together. I mean, it's just, it's just that kind of awful. It's a standoff right now. And so I don't know if we're witnessing a, a cultural shift or if this is just a shift in our politics because of the funding, mm-hmm. uh, which is possible. That's one of the reasons. The letter talked about the regular order that's being used to run the business of the Senate. But uh, the fact is that whatever it is, whatever the rules are, civility has to be laid on top of it because that's how we manage to get along. That's how we work together as a society. And without it, we are just kind of lost, which is why the letter. Well, you know, the title of the op-ed, the letter, is somewhat damning. Uh, The Senate is failing to perform its constitutional duties. You've alluded to some of that, um, and uh, we know the Senate has often been gridlocked in recent years. So which fundamental duties do you believe the body is failing to live up to? Well, when you start with the war powers, let's go with there. I mean, that that's something that's really had me annoyed for a long time. The power of the purse. It's the, the purse starts in the House, but the Senate makes the final judgment, theoretically, on what goes into the budget. We're running, running record deficits now, and the, nobody in the Senate has jumped up and said, this is really horrible because we're burdening generations to come, but that's reality of it. And so 
when the Senate abdicates its responsibility to be the watchdog of the taxpayers' money, then what you have is this kind of gridlock and a, and a failure of the civility that has made the Senate work in the past. Now, I think a lot of Americans are under the impression that recent presidents have been acting largely by executive order. But when you compare Presidents Trump, Obama, or George W. Bush to earlier eras, those presidents issued fewer executive orders. President Obama issued 35 per year on average. Uh, Trump, so far, about 45 per year. But, I mean, looking back to FDR, he issued almost 308 per year. Nevertheless, you and your fellow senators say you're concerned about the expansion of executive powers. Well, and again, the executive order actually has a funny history because you're right, it waxes and wanes in terms of which president uses which exec, how many executive orders and for what purpose. But the fact is that theoretically, every member of the Congress is supposed to vote on sending, you know, young men and women into harm's way in a war. And when people complain about endless wars, one of the reasons is because the legislature is not involved with those decisions. It's being done by fiat, by the president. I mentioned the deficits. Uh, We have a terrible situation with the deficits, runaway spending, and the spending is not, I mean, the priorities of the spending is something that has to get fleshed out in the legislative process. But the fact that those priorities are buried and we're having the deficits as well is really just not acceptable. So I think that those are my top top two. I mean, if you give me a list, I can do 10 maybe. But those are my top two in terms of the legislature, the Senate abdicating its responsibilities to the American people. Now, moving forward, you're calling for a bipartisan caucus of incumbent senators who could get together and start to get things moving. Right. What do you see as the major roadblocks or challenges to that happening? The major roadblocks, frankly, have to do with campaign finance because, uh, you know, anytime you're being able to get elected depends on people being riled up and angry or whatever, uh, then what that's going to do is force you to the extremes to raise money, which is what kind of is what has happened. And so, unfortunately, I think the way that we fund campaigns, the fact that we haven't had campaign finance reform can't seem to get there is one of the reasons why this spinning out to the extremes on both ends of the, of, of the, of the political spectrum. Uh, most Americans, I think, fall somewhere in the middle. And when you've got the parties defining themselves in extreme and radical terms, what you wind up with is an inability to get the people's business done, which is where we are now. What about voters? Do you think, you know, folks might see, well, uh, I voted for you. You're working with this person who I don't like political risk there? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Voters really, they want the business done. Paul Simon, who was my predecessor in the Senate, used to say, if you want to get plumbing done, you call an experienced plumber. You don't get somebody who's never fixed a toilet, right? Mm-hmm. So so voters really, they want, I think they want to get the get things done. They want to get the issues that concern them addressed. And they want solutions to problems. And so I think as long as we are in this uh, standoff and not talking to each other, we won't get those solutions addressed and we won't be able to do the people's business. And that's the ultimate tragedy of all this. It's not just a matter of being nice to each other. It's not just a matter of making friends on the, across the aisle. It really is a matter of how are you going to get the people's business attended to if you're not speaking to – you got to count your votes. 
Uh, to quote May- the late Mayor Daley, the late mm-hmm. Mayor Daley, uh, he'd say, you got to have the votes. You got to, you know, at the end of the day, you have to have the number of votes you need to pass whatever the proposition is. His recommendation was seven out of 10. But the point is, you have to have the, you have to be able to count and you have to be able to have the votes. And if you don't have the votes, then you get nowhere, as witnessed, frankly, recently in the impeachment effort. Right, right. Well, I mean, are there particular lawmakers, incumbent senators, maybe folks that you even worked with that you think could help lead the charge here? Well, yes, there are. And frankly, I, I haven't given up. I'm a perennial optimist, so I haven't given up hope. That's why I signed the letter. Um, I'm hoping that this letter will make some difference or get somebody's attention. Maybe we'll begin to uh, to deal with the, the, the political donors who help fund uh, these campaigns. Uh, if nothing else, if, if they just pay a little attention to what their donations are going to support and really to to actually prioritize things like competence and character and kind of the fundamentals of getting the people's business done. Because at the end of the day, it's not personal. It's not personal. Any one person, one individual, it has to do with are you getting the job done? What's your job description? And are you keeping your promises to the voters? Well, speaking of, um, you know, the people's business, what issues are ripe for bipartisan agreement or, or maybe, you know, at least bipartisan discussion? I think the deficit issues are very ripe for, uh, beyond ripe for, for bipartisan discussion. There was a movement afoot, I'm dating myself now, but there was a movement afoot probably a decade ago that was specific to getting getting rid of the deficits because, again, budget deficits is just kicking the can down the road and making sure our grandchildren pay the bills for our decisions today. So when you look at budget deficits, when you look at sustainability issues, I frankly think climate change is ripe for agreement. Uh, uh, when you look at those kinds of questions, those are things people can come to, can find what they agree on and address and deal with those things and then get to the disagreements. You're listening to Reset here on WBEZ. I'm Susie On in for Jen White, and I'm here with former U.S. Senator from Illinois, Carol Mosley-Braun. The Democrat from Hyde Park served in the Senate from 1993 to 1999. She's also been a member of the Illinois House, the Cook County Recorder of Deeds, U.S. Ambassador to New Zealand, as well as a lawyer in private practice. Mosley-Braun was a Democratic presidential candidate in 2004 and a candidate for Chicago mayor in 2011. And we're talking about the op-ed that she and dozens of former U.S. senators published yesterday in the Washington Post calling for more bipartisanship in the Senate. Now, Ambassador, I want to ask you a question about the Senate, not about how it functions or doesn't function, but about its very structure. You were elected in 1992 after garnering more than 2.6 million votes from Illinois residents. You beat out Republican Richard Williamson by more than 500,000 votes. Yet to become a senator in a state like Alaska, North Dakota, Vermont, a senator only needs to win about 200,000 votes. Should every state, regardless of population, get two senators? What are your thoughts on that? That's one of the oldest questions in this country. Uh, Part of the constitutional compromise was that the little states and the big states would be on an even keel, even par in the United States Senate. The House of Representatives is by population. So that's where that gets played out in terms of people being represented based on headcount. But the Senate was was always just two. And it didn't matter if you were Vermont or California or Texas. You got the same representation in the United States Senate. And that gets to the, the old saw was the House pours the tea and the Senate cools it. 
Well, you know, this became an issue in the Senate impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Uh, the 48 senators who voted to convict Trump represent 170 million Americans. That's 18 million more people than are represented by the 53 senators who voted to acquit the president. Right. But again, we've never had a direct democracy in this country. Even when you go back to the Federalist Papers, go back to the real beginning, Benjamin Franklin was asked, what have you wrought? And he says, a republic, if you can keep it. Uh, and so the question to us now is, can we keep it? And can we keep it, in the, given the fact that we have this um, uh, arrangement for the Senate, we have the Electoral College, mm -hmm. you know, take it one step further. I mean, think about it. Population relates to the House of Representatives and then states uh, relate to the Senate. And then you get an even smaller group electing the president uh, in the electoral from the Electoral College. So that's the way our republic is structured. Now, should there be structural change? Well, that's been debated back and forth. I frankly am not open to having a constitutional convention now because, you know, who, who knows what havoc would get wrecked <laughs> if you did it right now. Right. Uh, and the in these polarized times. No, seriously, I think that we just need to learn how to work together within the confines of the structure that we've inherited from our ancestors. And that is where we are today. Well, I mean, as you and your former Senate colleagues pointed out in the op-ed, the past was not a golden era for bipartisanship. Right. But the Senate is more gridlocked and divided now more than ever. Uh, what do you think happened? I'm not a social scientist, and I don't know if we're not witnessing a cultural shift, um, that there is a change in the way that people relate to one another, and that it is more raw and more aggressive and more bullying, all of those things, which are the antithesis of the opposite of, of civility. And I hope that's not what's going on here. Um, but that's what that's kind of unfortunately what it looks like, that it's things that would have been considered beyond the pale uh, when I first even when I got to the United States Senate are now just normal operating procedures, just regular. And so I'm hoping that we can get back to manners because manners matter. Manners matters as much as competence, competence and character. And so uh, I hope we can get back to that. But the society is going to have to drive that conversation. The voters generally, and even non-voters, people will have to drive that conversation. People often ask me, well, my vote doesn't count. You know, and I've always made the point. I said, you know, it's not that politicians lead the way. If anything, politicians will follow whatever it is you want them to do or what they think you want them to do. Well, then maybe related to this, and I'm, I'm going to make a little shift here um, to diversity. There have been 1,984 U.S. senators in American history. Ten have been black. Only two, you and current Senator Kamala Harris of California, have been black women. Does a lack of diversity hurt the Senate? I think so. I think so. And I think it hurts America. And the reason is because if you have diversity, what you have are voices from all the different people who have different life experiences. And that makes policy making more real. That makes the decisions that the Senate make uh, more likely to reflect what America needs and, and what America thinks and what the American people are looking for. And so when you don't have that diversity, what you have is just basically a bunch of rich white guys, if I may, talking to each other. And that's unfortunate because we've got a diverse country. The country is, is you know, we think of a garden. There's so many different types of people. And I think everybody, the whole idea of democracy is that the people will govern the country, will make the rules for their own governance. And you can't really have that with just a, one small group making decisions all the time. 
And so that's, I support efforts to open up the process, to make it more open to different kinds of people so that they, their voices can be heard. Because, again, it's not personal. It's about the voices that bear in on the policy issues having to do with the people's business. That's former U.S. Senator Carol Mosley Braun, Democrat from Illinois. She was one of 70 former U.S. senators who published an op-ed in The Washington Post yesterday calling for more bipartisanship in the Senate. Senator, thank you for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. If you know a person or organization working to make a difference in Chicago, let us know. Leave a message on our hotline at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. I'm Susie Ann, in for Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.